Good evening, everybody, and thank you for uh, being here. Uh, my name is Ed Schaffa, and I uh, want to take this opportunity for the first time this year to introduce myself as the former head of Comparative Media Studies and Writing, uh, or recovering. I'm not sure <laughs> And I'm very, very happy here to uh, introduce our speaker for this evening, um, who I think wants to have a conversation to speak with, um, as well as to you. Uh, and Anushka Shah is the founder of the Mumbai, Mumbai, sorry, based production house Civic Studios, as well as the Civic Entertainment Project at the Center for Civic Media here. As you will hear, her work explores how entertainment can be a tool for civic education and citizen participation. Anushka now uh, divides her time between uh, Mumbai, Boston, and Chicago. She has degrees from the London School of Economics and NYU, giving her a background in applied statistics and digital text analysis, and has previously worked with nonprofits and political parties in India. So please help me welcome. everyone for being here. It's kind of full room. I'm excited to see that. Um, I'm going to sit and present this. So if anyone has an issue hearing me, just let me know. Um, I'm really excited <coughs> to present this topic, how entertainment can fix the system. Very humble title, not daunting at all. Um, so I've spent the last three years uh, just across the hallway at the Center of Civic, uh, Civic Media, where I've worked on a range of different media projects. Uh, one of those was civic entertainment, which is something I started under the mentorship of Ethan Zuckerman, who is sitting right here. Um, I recently transitioned out of that role to work full-time at Civic Studios, which is the production house that Ed just mentioned. Uh, so it's a production house we started in Mumbai uh, earlier this year, and it really came out of this project. Uh, so the work we do you know, under the civic entertainment project and under Civic Studios is really about exploring how entertainment can be used as a tool or a medium to talk about civic education both in theory uh, and in practice. Um, the motivation for this work, you know, and why it personally interests me has many reasons going back to kind of when I was a kid. I think one of the main ones is really growing up, uh, and I grew up in Mumbai, I grew up in India, um, and like I said, I now kind of move between Chicago, Boston, Mumbai, and airplanes, those are my four average spaces where you can find me. Um, I think one of the main motivations was that I kind of observed growing up politics being used as a tool for both the good and evil. Um, I think as many of us would, no matter where we live. Uh, and it, there was a certain kind of sense of realization that civic education, and I didn't quite articulate it as the term civic education at that time, I learned about later, but it felt like civic education was a way to make us as citizens just more aware of the political effects and the political actions around us and the impact it has on us. Um, in more recent times, there's been a lot of studies that have proven that civic education you know, reduces uh, polarization, increases tolerance. So kind of the more data that comes out in this, the more my inspiration around this work just keeps getting stronger. Um, it doesn't hurt that watching Netflix is part of my job, so that's definitely a motivator as well. Um, so, what's the issue with civic education, right? And why is it um, that we're trying to use entertainment to further it? Uh, in school, we define civics as the study of rights and duties. But it kind of stopped right there. Right? 
there's very little in the way civics is talked to us in most parts of the world that really help you do anything uh, practical with it. Um, there's, there's very little that prepares you to practice those rights and duties in the real world. There's so often you'll be reading a news article, you'll watch something, you'll <coughs> be in a dinner table discussion and something really angers you, and you want to do something about it, but you just usually don't know where to start, or at least most of us don't. Um, and you kind of feel this cliffhanger feeling, right? So what is it that we can do to better prepare ourselves to participate in change around us? So I really like the way that Peter Levine, who is a professor over at Tufts University, frames the problem around civic education. He says the subject of philosophy addresses the nature of justice, but not actions that might be available to you to make the world more just. Political science is about the study of government and politics, but not what you and I should do together. And professional schools may teach us how to be lawyers or policy makers, but no department teaches strategies for citizens. And I think it's really this idea that civic education doesn't quite get the priority that it should, uh, that kind of creates this problem that we have in, in being unable to participate effectively in change around us. Um, so the more I started to research the space of civic participation, the more I learned under Ethan and his work, uh, the more I found that a lot of the solutions that we have around civic participation, at least in more recent times, have been around technology. This idea that we can use technology to change things around us. And that's really vital. It is really important to create the means and the platforms, you know, apps that let you provide feedback to your local government about an infrastructure issue or report an incident of bribery or corruption. But to me, it felt like there was a step missing before that, right? What stops us from adopting these means in the first place? There's just certain psychological, emotional, cultural barriers, fears we have about even adopting any of these platforms or, or means available. Um, so what would you do to motivate people to observe or adopt these uh, apps or technologies? Um, and I think there are three barriers that we have articulated. So the first is that most of us have a very limited knowledge about government systems and processes. When you start thinking about government and whether you want to engage with you know, the executive or the judiciary or your local council, it feels like there's so much out there that where do you even start? So that overwhelming sense uh, you know, of the amount of information out there is daunting in the first place. The second is, whatever little we even know about government causes us to massively distrust it. Right? You're usually hearing about things like corruption or inefficiency. And this is especially true uh, in, in, in a place like India, in developing countries. Um, although, in current times, maybe even not in developing countries. Uh, and the third really also is this lack of self-efficacy or confidence in the ability as a citizen to effect change. I feel like most of my conceptualization growing up about the idea of government was this 20th century characterization of you know me as a little person looking down at this monolith structure, and it just feels like what can I as one person do, uh, you know, for issues that are complex and, and overwhelming in their scale. Um, so to foster civic participation, I think we really need to first address these these thought barriers that are cultural, are emotional, are psychological, um, and so we need a tool or a means that can do that, that doesn't just rationally tell us, hey, you need to do a duty and you need to participate, but then motivates us to do that. And that's where enter entertainment. Right? Entertainment has the ability to speak to these aspects. Um, 
And growing up in India, of course, the influence of entertainment is huge. Not just Bollywood, which is what most of us are familiar with, that's the North Indian film, and, uh, film industry, but also the, the South Indian film industries, which actually Bollywood takes most of its cues from. Um, so, uh, and the thing about entertainment in India, whether it's North Indian, South Indian films, TV shows, uh, digital content, is that there's a very close reflection of what's in entertainment with what's happening in current politics and news. Uh, so, for example, recently, you know, India launched its first kind of mission to the moon, and we already have, you know, two TV shows and a movie out there. Um, so the, the kind of interaction between society and uh, entertainment is very, very kind of sy synchronized and correlated in India. Um, here's uh, an example of a film. It's called Rangde Basanti. It released, uh, uh, I forget the date, kind of in the early 2000s when there was a rise of the anti-corruption movement in India. It was a movie that inspired a lot of young people. Um, it had, uh, it, the story was about a group of young people uh, who were college students and who were motivated to fight against corruption in the country. Uh, it had a you know, great offline impact where it led to a rise in the number of protests, candle marches, there was even one kind of legal case that was reopened as a direct correlation between the movie and that. Uh, I was kind of young when it came out, um, so my, uh, Civic action became to represent, so in the movie, the college students use um, kind of spray paints to really paint walls and put their messages out there. So I decided that my bedroom wall would become my piece of resistance. Um, my parents were only mildly mortified at this. But um, beyond the anecdote of you know, my bedroom wall, uh, the power and impact of entertainment is pretty well established now through a range of studies. So I'll just give a couple of examples around this. So there's a show called Soul City, which has been running in South Africa for over 21 years. And it's like a top ranking show. They've been able to prove that viewers of Soul City, which is really a show around health communication, but it's kind of entertaining and fictionalized. Viewers of Soul City have lower rates of HIV than non-viewers of Soul City. And kind of there, these are you know, robust studies done over time. Uh, Sesame Street. Lots of studies done around this. You know, one particular statistic is that uh, children who watched Sesame Street when they were young were likely to have GPAs that were 16% higher than non-viewers of Sesame Street. Um, SVU, uh, they were able to prove in Washington that students who watched SVU had higher, had a kind of more clear understanding about sexual consent than those who did. Uh, the designated driver term, a term that is now you know, frequent and we use it very easily, uh, you know, at, at a party. Uh, that was a term that came out of the Harvard School of Public Health. It was a very intentional campaign that was, the term was inserted in different Hollywood movies and TV shows to get people to realize the concept of designated driver. Um, so the influence of entertainment works in many different ways, right? One is that it has a huge emotional resonance with us. There might be an issue or a topic that you might not connect with, but the movie or a TV show can really get you to do that. Um, it can mainstream a new set of norms. When a certain behavior or an attitude is shown as desirable on screen, in real life, you start to believe that that's also uh, desirable to do, that has a certain social validation to it. Uh, and this is, again, proven by a range of different studies. Um, parasocial contact hypothesis, which is something Ed has developed and written about and that we borrow heavily from. The idea that your experience of, um, of characters and their identities on screen influences the way you see that identity in real life as well. Um, 
action to consequence. When you see a certain action being taken on screen, and you see that it has a positive consequence uh, you know, in the story, or a negative consequence, you start believing that in real life that's also true. Uh, winner in the attention economy, I think this one is so true. In a day and age where we're fighting to you know, get people's attention to things, we're spending more and more hours watching entertainment, right? So why not take advantage of that? Um, so combining kind of the need for better civic education, barriers to civic participation, and the power of entertainment, we define civic entertainment now pretty simply as stories on the practice of rights and duties in a democracy. And we've been very intentional to use the word practice over theory or study. Um, so the types of stories that might qualify as civic entertainment, and this is just kind of an initial list, you know, we're, we're not uh, claiming we have a monopoly over this at all. But things like, you know, examples of real world citizen participation. And not just stories that romanticize the fact that you led a protest and you changed the world overnight, but really informing you of the actual challenges and the consequences of that kind of action. Um, giving you strategies and tips about you know, how, how do you really go about making change in that particular space. It's kind of like if you spoke to an activist who's been working in that issue for 20 years, they'll tell you kind of tips and strategies that are off the book that work. Um, uh, stories of activism fighting for reform and not just revolution. There's often a lot of movies that will tell you about what it means to have you know, a law passed and what it means to get to the revolutionary stage. And that's sexier to talk about than the institution building that comes after, right? Talking about bureaucracy and how you convert a law to a policy, that stuff's just not sexy. So how do you get that to be a compelling narrative? Um, perspectives from inside the system. Now this is especially true with Indian entertainment. Um, and we've documented this, which I'll cover a little bit later, but we tend to villainize our uh, politicians, our police, our uh, bureaucrats, uh, and so we don't, ha don't create enough of an understanding or empathy of what it means to be inside the system. The average police officer in India works seven days a week, 14 hours a day. Um, so how, you know, there are a set of challenges from within the institution that are also important to understand. Um, knowledge building on how public institutions work, Voices of underrepresented identity is very important. Um, and method narratives on practicing democracy through protest, petition, plea, you know, other means. Um, now the manner in which we marry education and entertainment varies, right? In some marriages, education wears the pants, and in some marriages, entertainment wears the pants. Now here's an example of uh, you know, something that's been, that education that's been made entertaining. Um, a lot of people in this room might already be familiar with uh, Schoolhouse Rock and uh, how a bill becomes a law. Uh, I'm going to play it. We had some audio difficulty where we couldn't connect the laptop to the screen. So the sound's going to come out of my laptop. I'm going to hope you guys can hear it. It's three minutes long, so you can sit back and relax. And
Video in the US. <laughs> it's a pretty yeah. iconic video in the yeah. US. Could everyone at the back hear it? Yeah. 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 There's also some seats up front in case people swing. So the kind of education that's made entertaining, right, works well, especially for things like children's programming. Or if, you know, as an adult you know it's something that you you kind of have to watch. It's education, like an airplane video. But if you're trying to influence an adult mind, um, going the other way, right? Picking entertainment and making it educational is a much more effective way of being influential. Um, and that's mainly because when you're watching entertainment, your defenses are down. You're not expecting to be educated at that point. Um, you're paying attention not because you should, but because you want to. Um, so I'm gonna show another thing that's from the second category. Uh, and that's really the kind of content we're focusing more on with Civic Studios and uh, with Civic Entertainment. Um, it's a trailer from an HBO miniseries called Show Me a Hero. For all fans of The Wire, over here is a David Simon show. Um, and uh, it takes you inside the functioning of a local council, uh, of how, uh, you know, what a mayor's role is, um, and different ways in which citizen and state you know, clash but also work together. Talk about it all the time ago. 
Increasing amount of content similar to that, right? Things like Spotlight, uh, things like the post that participant media made, a show like Pose, which really mainstreams the experiences of, of uh, the LGBTQ community. Um, but movies and TV shows and art of any kind is made for different purposes. Trying to create something with impact is just one subset of, of that purpose. You often make art for the sake of art, for critical acclaim, because you want to tell a good story. Uh, and the intent, the impact can have all sorts of pathways. Often when you're trying to make something purely for entertainment, you end up having an unintended consequence of a huge positive impact. Sometimes when you're trying to make something with positive impact, you end up doing completely the opposite. Um, for us, the goal with civic entertainment is you know, very explicitly with the purpose of impact. We're using entertainment as a tool. We're first civic educators. Um, and we've been hearing in recent times more and more people express this, right? I think in the last few years, the idea that the media is powerful is really something that, we, you know, it's become a mainstreamed idea, it's become really internalized. The 2016 election here helps, 2014 election in India did that. Um, and so there's more and more people who are talking about using this powerful tool with the intent of good, with the intent of social change. Um, so in creating entertainment or media with the idea of impact, um, how do we go about thinking of, about impact? And the thing is, there's a lot that can happen between your intent and the final impact. One is unintended consequence. So uh, Wall Street money never sleeps in Gordon Gecko. The director, Oliver Stone, had said that the reason he made this film, he was inspired by his father, who was a businessman, and the reason he made this film was because he wanted to show the power of business for growth and to bring peace. It did completely the opposite. There are several studies that have documented how Wall Street led to the rise of a generation of psychopath financiers. That's not my term, that's a term from the studies. Um, and Michael Douglas himself has, I'm gonna quote this, at a UN conference he said this, that he bore some responsibility for the behavior of the greed merchants who had brought the world to its knees. Um, so really, people started romanticizing and glorifying this idea of Gordon Gekko uh, and his ideology in the movie that greed is good. The other issue that can happen between your intent and impact, 
selectivity bias in what the audience chooses to watch. Um, think of shows like Modern Family or uh, Orange is a New Black, right, that have been hailed as progressive shows. Here's a study done by the New York Times which shows viewers of Modern Family. That's the graph on the left. The viewership is inversely, inversely proportional to states which have the greatest number of anti-LGBTQ laws. Um, this one on the right is Duck Dynasty. So the show with you know men with long beards and Christian values um, is one of the most geographically divisive shows. There is a, the strongest correlation they were able to prove between watching a show and your political standing was with this show, between viewers of this show and voting for Trump. Um, so, so when you're kind of thinking of you know progressive content, it's an important question to ask who's watching it. Uh, is it an audience that already believes in those values and this kind of the satisfaction of a confirmation bias? I know for a fact I watch content which makes me feel like my values are validated. Um, uh, how much you know does an audience who has the opposite mindset come to watch that show and really leave with a change in attitude or behavior? And I think that gets even more significant in the politics of our distribution platforms now. We're no more in an age where there's one or two major movies that everyone's going on Saturday night to watch, or one TV show that kind of everyone's talking about. There's like a billion movies and TV shows out there, right? And we're all kind of now watching different things. So what we, what we do to <coughs> pick a show or a movie now matters a lot more. The pitch that the content creator makes, either through the trailer or through the marketing, or the, uh, the actors or the actresses they choose to cast matters a lot in, our, in, our, in the reason why we pick that. Um, so I'm gonna show you this one more trailer, uh, which is of a movie that, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Bollywood movie, it's called Article 15, and <coughs> Article 15 is the title of the part of the con Indian Constitution that talks about uh, kind of preventing discrimination on, you know, based on your identity or your belief. <laughs> Because the pitch of the movie, you can tell, takes a very clear stand. 
if I'm someone who really believes in grammatical supremacy, then prominence really shouldn't be at the top. If I'm someone who doesn't want to you know, get antagonized by the idea of changing caste, I don't think I'm going to as easily watch that as if I thought otherwise. So the pitch of the movie is kind of, you know, almost trying to preach to the choir in a certain way. Um, on top of that, the movie was, you know, it released in theaters, and then it was released on Netflix after that. Now, Netflix in India has a very small audience. Um, it's the subscription fee is much higher than any of the other platforms. Um, so the, the audience that watches Netflix in India is urban, uh, kind of upper class, educated, uh, you know, less likely, statistically again, to believe and endorse the caste system. Um, so the choice to put it on Netflix gets critical acclaim for the director, but probably not as, as much impact as if they went with Amazon or Hotstar, which is kind of a regional platform. Um, and, I, and I think of comparing this pitch to something like Mad Max. Right? When I watched the trailer of Mad Max and I went to see the movie, it was because I thought it would be the stunning action movie full of the typical masculine tones of like violence and you know um, manlyhood. And you watch the movie and it hits you in the face with this brilliant uh, female lead protagonist who replaces the male protagonist. Um, and so just, just to compare the kind of pitch difference between these two. Um, so if our priority really uh, is you know, using the media to create impact, uh, and very intentionally as a tool for change, then I think there are certain questions that we need to be asking ourselves. Um, and the reason I put these out there is the civic entertainment work we're doing, we're really in the early stages of it. So it is very much an experiment for us, uh, and I should probably have titled the you know, the, 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 I should change the title of this presentation to be uh, how entertainment can fix the system, dot, dot, dot. What do you think? Because I think that's a little bit of why we're presenting at this early stage. We really do want people's input and feedback. But these are some of the questions that we're asking ourselves as we're creating this content. Um, what's really the issue or problem statement you're trying to address? You know, how clearly can you define it? What research have you done on the topic? Who produced that data that you're using for research? And how inclusive was that data? Who's your target audience? What is their belief on their topic? What is their existing perception or bias or experience of that issue? What's the pitch of your content and who's likely to watch it? Um, I won't read through all of these, I'll just read through some of them. Um, kind of, you know, what shelf life will your media piece have? Does your media need an offline campaign to have an impact? Uh, are you building or engaging a fan base around it? Um, are you offering your audience a talking point or a tool that they can kind of go away after watching your content and use in the real world? Um, what are the values of your production team and your script writer and your screenwriter and everybody behind the camera is doing this? Um, how does the nature and source of your funding influence uh, the impact of your work? So the reason we set up Civic Studios uh, you know, in Mumbai as a complement to the civic entertainment work at the Center for Civic Media is because we wanted to build the space of civic entertainment out, not just as a theory, but as a practice. We wanted to develop production processes that center this idea of media impact. Um, so in this first year of Civic Studios, we have tried to work with some of these questions as we create our media. So what I wanted to kind of do for the rest of the presentation is take you through our current project and tell you very practically what we've tried to do to build this impact in. Um, and feel free to kind of pause me at any time for questions or feedback. I've got my notebook right open here. Um, so just to give you a very quick sense before I dive into that about you know, who Civic Studios is and where we are right now. So we're based in Mumbai. We're set up as a for-profit company because we really want to you know, 
compete with other entertainment out there. Um, uh, we have a team of four full-time people and three part-time people. Um, we have so far co-produced one YouTube TV show, which is one of the left constitution of the fun and tuition, um, nerdy, yes. Um, kind of a John Oliver format where it's a, a you know, young comedian who's also a policy wonk talking about things like parliament and budget. Um, and then we kind of did this other uh, narrative documentary which, which traced the arc of an activist, an anti-corruption activist group into the formation of a political party. Um, but this year was kind of just our warm up. And we've also kind of you know, produced different publications and press articles and done events. Uh, but all of this was you know, us getting our feet off the ground and now we're really focusing on the Meet Up Our Work, which is our first in-house project. Um, so again, these are our initial attempts, and I'm going to walk through some of these steps that we've taken with the production processes. So the first one, right, picking the problem. We spent a lot of time discussing how do we define civics for ourselves and for our work. Uh, and after much discussions, we chose the focus to be things directly related to the knowledge and skill about engaging with one of the arms of government. So executive, judiciary, or legislature. Um, we wanted, you know, we knew that kind of any momentum we create through the media to lead to impact on one of these or how we define, quote unquote, the system. Um, we chose to begin with one vertical, so we chose to start with the judiciary. Now I think the key thing we knew as a team is that with an Indian audience, um, talking directly about constitutional civic topics, right? things like judicial reform, um, or parliamentary committees, or legislative processes, there wouldn't be as much of an existing momentum around these issues, or an existing emotional connect. There is a rational understanding that we need to, you know, we need to do this, but I think even if, despite being a civics nerd, I think if I watch content around this, I might not be as, you know, geared up to do something about it. Um, so we started thinking kind of what are the topics that already have existing momentum around them and that people feel an emotional connect to. Now in the last five to seven years in India, um, kind of post the 20, in 2012, we had this horrific gang rape that happened in the capital city in New Delhi. And that really kind of was a turning point around the conversation of women's issues in India. Um, and so over the last five to seven years, there has been much more of a momentum around the topic of gender equality and women's issues. So we decided to work with that and further the momentum around that. Um, now we started talking to veteran activists, women or women's organizations that work in this space, and we started asking, you know, what role does the judiciary play in women's issues? And they all told us that there are some incredibly progressive gender laws in India, you know, very, very progressive uh, on paper, but the implementation of these laws has really suffered. So what's really needed for the judiciary the system to work with, with this issue is that the implementation of these laws need to improve. And very specifically, kind of, it was almost like all the activists and organizations pointed us unanimously towards this one law, the Domestic Violence Act, which was passed in 2005 in India. It's a law that kind of covers all kinds of violence, emotional, sexual, physical, um, so you know, things like rape and sexual harassment would also fall under this. A majority of kind of victims of rape and sexual harassment know their, know their attacker, right? So really, it is often a domestic relationship. Um, so we decided to make the Domestic Violence Act our Trojan horse about civic issues, because we knew that there's a much higher risk of us trying to talk about civic issues directly. Um, and, and just to kind of put out one statistic about the importance, again, of the, the domestic violence, you know, the act is that 
about 35 to 50 percent of women, in, all women in India, go through domestic violence. 75 percent of them attempt suicide because they neither have a response from society nor from the state. So you're kind of trapped in that situation. So the role the law is meant to play is that it's meant to give you that support. It's meant to give you an out of the situation. So it is really critical that this law is implemented well. Um, so step two, right, researching the issue. The first thing that we knew when we started thinking about this topic and how sensitive it is and how anything we create uh, can have you know, a, a really good or bad or mixed impact. Uh, so we knew that we really needed to get on the skin of this issue and research it. Um, so we first read everything we could get our hands on, you know, every publication, every piece of data, news article. Uh, and there was a lot of research around it, but a lot of it was focused on the experience of women uh, and what they go through. There was almost nothing about the experience of the state. What is the police who has to respond to a woman who comes to the police station do? What is the protection officer who is a key kind of state frontline actor who's appointed by the government to do? Um, how does the policymaker think about it? If we're trying to address the system and make the system work better, it's really important that we understand their perspective and their challenges. Um, so to kind of cover these gaps in the research, we've spent the last six months doing primary research. We have spoken to over 100 you know, women who face domestic violence, police officers, protection officers, lawyers, judges, um, medical workers. Um, my colleagues Ruhi and Amrita who are based in Bombay have been doing a lot of this. Um, and uh, kind of this research has been critical because it's led us to identifying three very clear points in which the system kind of breaks down. One, and this is just some images of the research, um, one is women who are the end users of this law have not been made aware of the law. The levels of awareness just that the law exists, what features and facets there are, is abysmal. Um, so if there isn't a demand by the end users on a service, that service just isn't going to function well. So creating more awareness amidst women who are both victims or potential victims of the law is, is key. Two, protection officers and police who really are the first point of contact for, for the women. Um, kind of most of them have been given this work as an additional charge on their already existing duties, on their already existing super long work hours uh, and poor conditions, uh, and they've not been provided any trainings or resources. They also kind of come from the same society uh, that's perpetuating or facing this domestic violence. Um, so there is this almost unreal expectation on them to deliver this act. And three, the budget that has been set up by the center has been insufficient. Um, it's far less than what was mandated, and even what has been uh, set out is uh, very little of it has been spent. So these were kind of the three you know, findings that we had about where the system breaks down in the implementation of this law. Um, I'll just make one point here that the team we put together for this was very important because um, not just you know not just kind of needing people from the right background in terms of you know skilled researchers who can do quantitative qualitative studies who would know how to kind of you know conduct these sensitive interviews um, and work with nonprofits but also just in terms of the gender makeup right it, it's important for working on women's issues that we have the right women's representation um, you might have noticed in the picture earlier there were like six women and like one man. Uh, in that, so we uh, might be skewing a little bit to one side now. Um, and we're trying to actively now work towards that even with the class and caste representation and the sexual representation within the group. Um, um, so kind of, you know, once we once we did this research and we processed it and you know, we're still in that phase of this is, this is 
still a hypothesis for us. Um, but we've got down to identifying the audience and the format for this. So the first audience was victims and potential victims of domestic violence, right? So the audience, the entertainment audience equivalent of that based on statistics of which women it affects the most was female viewers from urban areas in North India between the ages of 15 to 35. Um, so we know that women in rural, rural North India probably face uh, domestic violence in a much worse way, but there isn't a way for us to access them through entertainment. They don't have access to cell phones, um, television viewership isn't as high, so this was a conscious decision for us to say we're going to address women in urban and semi-urban India. Um, the message would be about the provisions in the law, but also the practical journey of filing and fighting the case, right? Our civics, the civics we want to teach, like I said, is about the practice and not just the theory of it. Um, the format, based on the research that we have both kind of commissioned and done on our own about media diets of this target audience of female viewers in North India, that age group, um, led us to kind of creating a format of a dramatic or light-hearted digital show that's kind of aimed at very actively getting a female audience to watch that. Um, the second is the police officers and protection officers. Now, um, the audience for this is kind of officials in urban and semi-urban districts in the state of Delhi, or the Pradesh, Bihar, and Madhya Pradesh, which are kind of the key northern states. Um, the message in, in the content we will be pushing to them is information about the law, training on its implementation, preventing mediation. Um, often you will have you know, women come up to file a case, and the most common reaction uh, of a police officer, especially a male police officer, is that, no, you know, go back home and figure it out. Like, sit with your husband, solve it. Um, um, so kind of how do you prevent them from mediating and creating an understanding of domestic violence within them? Um, now again, based on our research of kind of what police officers are watching, um, you know, and, and what they spend their most time on, because they're working such long hours, they don't actually have the chance to watch entertainment. But they are spending a lot of time on Facebook groups, WhatsApp groups. So we're kind of now in talks with different government departments to kind of push uh, short comedy videos that's focused on this message through these, uh, through these channels. The third uh, kind of stakeholder or audience for us is the general population of civil society. Um, and this is really getting to the part about the budget that I mentioned, there being not, not enough of a budget set up, right? Because we need a certain advocacy and uh, a kind of societal push towards that. So that's really male and few female viewers between the ages of 18 to 45 in urban and semi-urban India. So it's a very wide audience. It's really not that targeted. Um, the message that we would give is talking about the story of the women's movement that went behind this act. So there's this 20 years of a campaign that goes behind this act before it's passed in parliament. And when it's passed, it's unanimously passed. Every political party that they feel the woman candidate to speak. So it's got this dramatic peak. <coughs> the story has all the elements to make it a good dramatic retelling, whether it's a movie or a TV show. Um, and so this is, you know, this is kind of what we're in conversation with some production houses about creating as a bigger budget, um, uh, kind of like a uh, bigger budget show. Um, uh, and so the, the story would kind of be about telling the history of the women's movement, but also advocating towards the end as a call to action that, okay, you know, this happened, we passed the law, but the implementation suffered because there hasn't been enough of a budget set out. So really creating an offline campaign then to get people to advocate with the government for a bigger budget. Um, the fourth part for us was understanding the distribution platforms. So if we want to put this content, this message out, who do we partner with? Right? Do we go to Netflix, Amazon? Do we go to a regional player? Do we really push it through a social media platform? 
So we try to get our hands on all the possible data out there around the industry metrics around this. Um, kind of you know, what is the reach of each of these platforms, what's the demographic, the class, the age group, the gender, uh, what languages does it have. So you'll see at the bottom on the, in the yellow room, we kind of put a evaluation about whether it's low, medium, or high in terms of how applicable it is to, to our work. Something like Netflix falls pretty low because Netflix in India, you know, like I was saying, has a smaller audience. Netflix subscriptions fee is somewhere between 500 to 800 rupees a month in India, which is roughly $10, kind of similar to what it is in the US. Now, Amazon's is that much for a whole year. So Amazon has uh, you know, a viewership that's far higher than Netflix's. Um, something like Geo, which is uh, you know, a, a kind of Indian telco, has uh, 230 million users on its platform. WhatsApp in India has 200 million monthly active users. So you know, those have a much bigger reach. Um, the fifth thing that we did, again, just to remind all of these things are part of our production processes that we're developing with the intent of impact, right? So it was really important for us to analyze our competition, not necessarily in terms of whether our show will do well in the profitability, that's of course one part of it, but because we know our show or movie is not going to work in isolation. Someone watching it is also watching 50 other things, which if they're given the opposite message, then we need to be mindful of that and we need to kind of work around that. So we started putting, putting together this report about crime and punishment representation in Indian entertainment. Um, and we coded you know, different movies and TV shows that are, that are police or courtroom dramas, and we started coding them with how do they talk about the police, right? And a majority of it was that they're inefficient or that they're slow. 42% um, of the crimes shown, and this, was, this is just the first data that's come out of the movies, but 42% of the crimes shown are vigilantism or extrajudicial killing. And that's kind of glorified in these movies as a way to create justice. System doesn't work, just go around it, you know, be a vigilante. Um, women are usually represented in like a mother role or a wife role or half a non-speaking institutional worker role. But when we kind of analyze a lot of this uh, data and the representation in these, there's three pretty disturbing findings that we had. Two, which we kind of expected, which is second and third, which is that vigilantism is glorified and justified. We knew we would probably find that. Three is, you know, citizen and state interactions always shown as violent, aggressive. We kind of knew to expect that. The first is something we had not quite absorbed. Misuse of gender laws by women. That has become the overarching narrative in so many Indian films, TV shows, TV content. Most of the people behind the screen creating this are men, right? And they feel threatened by these laws. Um, they feel threatened by the idea that, so in these laws on paper, because of how bad you know, gender equality and, the, and women's issues are in India, only a woman can be a victim. So that point becomes a rallying point for a lot of men's groups in India to say that the law is misused. So that was very important for us to, to, to realize, that in our content, we're going to have to address this. Um, the sixth step was studying the impact pathways of internet entertainment. And this will change you know, depending on what media ecosystem you're operating in. But there were about six that we've identified so far. And this is a paper that we're working on with Microsoft Research uh, in India. So one is, of course, the reach, right? How many people are watching it? Um, that's, that's the key pathway of how do you get your content out there? 
two in India because I was saying how the uh, the topics in entertainment closely reflect news and politics. The news coverage that that particular con piece of content gets becomes very important to give it a shelf life outside of the screen. So there's a graph here that we created using Media Cloud, which is one of the other uh, cool uh, tools that Center of Civic Media has made. It's an open source tool, um, but we were able to track. This movie called Padman, which was about menstruation and the need for low-cost sanitary napkins, um, we were able to track how that was spoken about with the with the topic of menstruation and, san and sanitary pads. And there was a very direct co correlation, as you can see, between the blue and orange. Quite soon after the movie released, um, you know, there was a lot of media coverage. The the content creators worked very hard to create these news and media campaigns. And uh, a little bit after, there was. Um, a move within the government to make sanitary napkins tax-free. Now, that's of course not just because of the movie. There's a lot of activism and non-profit groups that work on this. Um, so it really mainstreamed this this idea of this topic. Um, uh, the other is fan culture, which you know is, is true for um, entertainment ecosystems around the world. Issue interest. So we're also able to track when a movie comes out. How much do how much is the Google Trends data? support the fact that people are looking for not just that movie, but that issue. So with Article 15, we, know, we noticed that there was people looking for caste and caste violence. Um, industry impact of ripple effect. There's a huge uh, kind of ripple effect that happens in Indian entertainment, where if one type of movie works, there's like a copycat syndrome of other kind of lower budget movies trying to create the same. So it does you know, impact the industry itself. And then the last is kind of online buzz. Um, the memes or the cultural kind of uh, facets that you create, or the cultural artifacts that you create in a piece of entertainment, end up having a huge impact on how social media digests it. Especially things like Shared Chat and TikTok, which are huge in India. Um, so there was a movie called Kabir Singh, which came out um, recently. Edible movie. Like, it's shocking how bad it is in terms of its misogyny. Um, it shows, like, the you know, this, this college guy falling in love with a college girl and he shows her being him being very violent towards her in this very glorified, justified way. And when the director in an interview was asked, you know, why do you why did you show this? He was like, In love, if you can't hit the person you love, then you're not truly in love. So I'm just giving you an example of kind of how extreme the movie was. Um, but we saw on TikTok these videos by young people, young boys emulating that same behavior. So Really, there is that kind of, and there were certain dialogues that were used in the movie to show that you know love means violence, and that was kind of taken on uh, onto these platforms. So again, in terms of you know us creating impact through entertainment, it's important we understand what those pathways within the Indian e uh, entertainment ecosystem that we're working on what they are. Um, step seven. I, this is the last one. I promise. Um, uh, is using edutainment. To so there is this amazing field of entertainment education that you know really stemmed out of the Latin telenovelas. Uh, the psychologist Albert Bandura worked very carefully on on documenting what kind of characters, their behaviors, their tone, uh, help create an influence on the audience. So there's something that he talks about, which is characters as role models. So a sh a usually a media piece should have a positive, a negative, and a transitional character. So a positive that you can idealize and kind of say, okay, that is idealized, and kind of say that that is you know who I want to be. But often that character is unattainable. You watch Gandhi, you watch Mandela, The Long Walk to Freedom, and you're like, that's it's a great activist. I can't quite be that person. There's the negative character, which you know I definitely don't want to be that person, right? There's, so you've now set the boundaries with desirable, undesirable. You're usually somewhere in the middle. 
So that transitional character, as per Bandira, becomes very important. It's somebody the audience can identify with and watch in the content how that average person goes from being average to working carefully towards the positive behavior. Um, providing a tool. Uh, so provide a tool in terms of you know a talking point, a primer, a conversation starter that the person can take away into their offline action. Create engaging conflict. We shouldn't assume that people are going to find a story about domestic violence interesting just because we think domestic violence is important. They'll probably find it interesting because of the conflict and the love angle between the husband and wife or the girl and boy. So we need to be mindful that the interest of the issue and the interest of the conflict may not always be the same. Um, resolving the conflict realistically and entertaining, entertainingly. So the movie Rangde Basanti that I pointed out earlier, um, it had a very entertaining ending in that it really made you emotional and you know charged you up, but it was not a realistic ending at all. So it didn't quite necessarily give the right tools to go and solve for corruption. Now the movie did a lot already, but had it probably gone that last step, you know, it may have may have achieved that. I tried to speak to the director about this, didn't go down too well. Um, but kind of there are some of the tools in entertainment that are awkward. This is the last thing. It's not really a step. But it's something we're trying to do again from the impact point of view where we realize that we can't quite operate in isolation within an industry, right? We need to learn from others who have been part of the entertainment industry for decades and try to create change in their own ways. Um, and so really what we try and do is publish you know, any research that we have, put out any ideas that we have. Um, we wrote a piece on you know, Delhi Crime, which was a Netflix show, and we very consciously did not publish it in an academic blog or an academic you know, space. We published it in a very popular entertainment uh, blog and website. We wanted like content creators, scriptwriters, and directors to be able to read this. Um, we had an event in August last year, which Ethan very kindly came down for, and him right there, um, which was which was about getting together people from the social and research sector in the room, along with people from the hardcore entertainment industry. Um, we're doing another event uh, on 8th November this year, which is. Uh, on the crime and punishment report that I mentioned, and we've got kind of lawyers and judges and entertainment professionals in that room. Um, so trying to kind of engage with the industry as is is really part of part of what we're doing. So that's what we have so far. That's as far as we've got. You know, we're kind of in the phase two of research and <coughs> design. We're now, uh, as we sit to analyze a lot of this research that we've done, we're simultaneously getting into the concept creation and script writing. Um, really into the creative phase. Um, and you know, as, as I said, kind of a lot of this is an experiment for us. And the reason that we want to talk about this at an early stage is because we're trying to be as participatory, open, uh, trying to get input from people like you in this room from different kind of fields related to media with an interest in media to help us shape this thinking. Um, so I'm kind of going to end there, but any questions, thoughts, feedback would be very valuable. I've been talking for ages, so you guys must take a break. So I'm going to stop. So thank you.
so yeah. use those techniques to be able to decide that kind of thing for their work. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And again, part of the reason we're, I'm talking about this is we want to share these ideas. I think um, because these are untested, right, these are hypothetical right now, I think once we, you know, in a year or two, once we've actually implemented some of them and see how they work, uh, and we'd like to talk about them and release them irrespective. You know, if they fail or they succeed or they're somewhere in between. So I think we would definitely do that once we've tried them out. Yeah. Hi, um, thank you for an interesting um, presentation. Uh, so you talked a lot about sort of um, your research and your story ideas and generating them and reaching out to social activists and things like that. Um, maybe because I'm a journalist, I don't know. Um, I didn't hear any sort of like you know outreach to journalists who do a lot of this work anyway in terms of the research, in terms of the character building, in terms of getting the message across and identifying audience. And I'm wondering if you, I mean, you know, it's obviously not a new idea to option a, an article or a book, but I'm wondering if you're also sort of reaching out into uh, the media and sort of tapping some of the resources and the skills that uh, the media has to offer, like journalists have yeah. to offer. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Um, I'd say we're doing some of it, but probably not enough. Um, so for example, for the event that we're having in November, the crime and punishment one, we're doing a conversation um, there with a journalist uh, called S. Hussain Zedi, who is really kind of the, uh, a key journalist who documents crime uh, investigations in India. So and his books often go on to become movies. So you know, drawing from the skills that he uses to document this and create characters of real people that he's seeing um, is something we're, we're trying to do. Um, but I think it's a good point that in our outreach, we should probably more be more intentional about reaching out to journalist networks um, in terms of both learning from them and sharing what we're doing. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Maybe not as easy to work with necessarily. 
um, and to sell content on those platforms, you kind of have to fit into a certain mold of that. Um, and there have been some very progressive ones every now and then. Um, I, I'm not sure I understand your first question. So you said something about the interplay between platforms that are accessible? Yeah, so I guess I was just thinking about um, if you're in India, obviously, like you have access to that wide variety of platforms that we saw on that chart. But then if you're not in India, at least to my understanding, you don't necessarily have access to all of them. Like all of a sudden, mm. Netflix becomes a more effective way to right. get Indian media than the other ones you're thinking about. Yeah. So do you mean from the point of view of Indians living outside of India to use access um, them? Indians living outside or even the other way around. It, it's a really open-ended question. Yeah. I don't know of any platforms that that would not that are accessible here but that would not be accessible there. Um, I know the other way around because you require a VPN to watch a lot of the regional ones. But uh, do you have an example of a platform? Related to this idea of um, kind of how certain media creates these like bad values that are then replicated, but I'm kind of interested in maybe the the higher level end of it. I'm kind of curious about um, how shifting norms of like the industrial side of things, the production side of things, right, changing like minds and attitudes about what's acceptable to green light, um, what sort of directors who have especially terrible viewpoints in making things, like how that might shift, because 
I mean, I don't know. I always look at America, American film, like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like, for years, it was a boys' club, and because of that, it's, like, yeah. super misogynist, and all the comedies are, like, homophobic and transphobic. And that hasn't totally shifted, but yeah. somehow the way, like, the norm shifted. So I'm kind of curious if you have an idea of if that's something you all are interested in taking part in, or if you see a way that that could develop. And yeah. yeah. Do you mean more in terms of kind of representation behind the screen, and what, how that allows representation on the screen? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a question of representation, but also just looking at kind of the industry as it exists now, like yeah. even the people who are making the things, right. getting them to maybe not do things like yeah. endorse ideas about domestic violence that are actually like victim-blaming yeah. or manipulating like, yeah. the law, yeah. something like that. You know? Yeah, I think that's definitely why, you know, the last part of the industry engagement that I was talking about, um, especially in things like this rising trend of talking about gender laws being misused. Um, I think the reason why we're creating an event out of it and, you know, doing a lot of PR and marketing around the report and that event when it comes out, um, is to try and do that. You know, I don't think we can, I, mean, I, 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 I know that's not what you're saying, and it's not that we can kind of set any mandates about what can be shown and what can't be shown, but at least trying to create conversation on why it's bad. Like this movie, Kabir Singh, that I was talking about, we were looking at the comments on the YouTube videos of critics who had put out videos saying, oh, you know, this movie's bad. Most of the comments were saying, oh, you know what, entertainment doesn't have this impact. The audience is mature enough, they're not going to go and be violent in real life. But using evidence like the TikTok videos where we actually do see that becomes a powerful way for us to rally and say, hey, you know what, it does have this impact. So actually you do have to be responsible about what you show. Um, so I think that is, that is what we're trying to do. We're trying to actively seek out and work with directors or writers who think like that, trying to kind of grow that tribe almost in a way. Um, so yeah.
So those are just two responses to the team and the, the funding. Um, yeah, I'm happy to answer other questions about the thing later. Thoughts or critiques would be great. Uh, just a question. Um, sort of observing about 60 years, so, so from about the time that the civil rights movement in the US sort of became publicly visible, there have been well-intentioned people in Hollywood making films promoting uh, greater, you know, less uh, anti-racist films. Mm. But they've mostly, but most of them have in the end sort of end up right up to say Greenville two years ago. So recapitulating these really creepy narratives of white saviors and magic Negroes, you know, the two those are not my terms, but those tropes. Um, so good intentions aren't enough, I guess is what I'm saying. And obviously one issue there is that often those are made only by white people without any African-American representation. But the other thing I think is just not sufficient for lack of this, I know it's sound but ideological rigor, rigor. You know, they're not enough really interrogating what are we actually saying and what does it actually mean. And I guess my question is sort of what's your mechanism for making sure that um, you don't fall into <coughs> kind of easy tropes that don't actually you know, um, affect real change? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a critical billion dollar value question. Um, Based on what we know so far, and I'm sure over the years we learn more, but representation on the team, I think, is like the most critical thing. Um, we feel relatively comfortable right now talking about domestic violence because we have so many women on the team, and so there is a certain understanding of what what that means. If if we had to make content about um, caste discrimination, I I think we would shudder to do that because I think we just on the team right now don't have that diversity, um, and I think if we had to do that, we would very very intentionally. Uh, recruit for that, build our understanding over time, make sure we have experts uh, on it. Uh, and I think, you know, from the studies we've been reading of people who have talked about this and you know, know about it much more, so I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing from them because we haven't quite gone through this yet. Um, but that representation matters in every aspect of the production process. So not just in the team, but in the funding, in the screenwriter, in the, uh, the camera person, um, in the cast. Um, so I think we would really, I think that is the key to getting us close to a responsible narrative. I think the other thing is doing a lot of testing of the message and the content before it's out there, both with members of the community you're trying to represent and with non-members to see kind of, you know, often a message can land in just two very different ways. Um, so I'd say those are the two two things that we and, and I, that's also, I think, why we're trying to very actively engage with the academic community and why we have you know, MIT Honors Project, where we talk with other academic partners. Um, because there's, you know, there, there's, there's a need to kind of every now and then, or if not every now and then, frequently step back from what we're doing and say, how much are we going by a certain sense of principles around how do you res create responsible narrative? Um, so, yeah. Nish, when you were starting to really discuss this and talk about this, your feeling was you didn't want to produce directly, you wanted to be a co-producer, and you wanted to sort of leverage the existing strength of the Indian media industry, bring in the research, bring in the best practices around this. Um, it sounds like you're starting to write scripts, which is great and, yeah. and exciting. 
is this a shift? Are, are you now looking at this and sort of saying, maybe we actually have to be the producer's soup to nuts to sort of build the content we want to see? Yeah. And, and if that's the case, what, what sort of brought you to that? Yeah. Well, I, th I think we were open to both co-producing and in-house stuff when we started. But we wanted to start with co-producing more because you know, we were so kind of new to this. Mm -hmm. um, I think kind of as we started, we realized that we would, until we got into the thick of the process and really did A to Z ourselves, uh, we would never really know what it looks like. Yeah. Um, it, it can be quite an opaque process when you're working with somebody else, especially around the budgeting. Uh, the budgets for production can just escalate so quickly. So I think where to cut costs and where to be innovative around that, uh, which is so key to to creating an intervention like this, because we're constantly asking ourselves if we put you know $100 into this, um, how else could that $100 have been used to affect that issue? So if it's domestic violence, that $100 gone into production needs to be as or more useful yeah. than if an NGO could have taken that $100 working with victims of domestic violence. Um, so I think that really was one of the key reasons why we said we want to do it in-house. Yeah. Um, yeah. Super interesting, thanks. Um, and it sounds like you've picked a really good issue and there's clearly a massive need for it in India. Um, I had a question, and I hope this isn't too off topic, but um, obviously in India there is a northern film industry, there is a southern, there's fairly widespread internet access. I think all the time about the absence of pop culture in places where it's not allowed by the state, whether it be for authoritarian or fundamentalist religious reasons. Yeah. I didn't know if you've ever like come across anyone who's trying to do a similar thing, but in a place where just access to a media period is way more difficult. Um. I think we don't, I've not actively worked with anyone in this space, but I do think of the fact that uh, music and art and poetry has often been used as a key tool of resistance, especially in places where you're not allowed to do that. Um, I think it's often been used discreetly and in different ways. Um, I mean, I know there are extremes where no kind of art is really allowed, and I'm not sure in an ecosystem like that, you know, whether there's an alternative means that you find. Um, but I think in a lot of places, you know, if it's not entertainment and pop culture, it's much more local folk art or songs or music that that allow those ideas to be carried forward. Um, Ethan actually has documented this one nonprofit um, in India that uses music and songs very actively to talk about ideas of civic rights and uh, the right to information. Um, and that was something that was seen as a contentious right to ask for, but they did use music kind of under that authoritarian uh, to, to do that, it's. I think often it's not seen as as dangerous as more other as other direct forms of propaganda. Um, music, that is. Yeah. yeah, music, poetry, art of different yeah, forms. Um, I think that there's there's art when it's used very directly to antagonize um, and to protest, and there's often times where it's used in a much more kind of subconscious, subtle way to create change. I guess I'm wondering from um, the perspective of like people, or for people who are now like uh, aware of this and as we're interacting with people in like, the promotion that you want um, people like us to do about um, civic studios and also specifically like if, because like what's coming to my mind right now is just over the last few months, like having met several academics who are doing like queer theory, like past resistance, like amazing projects with like in these communities where it's like, do you want us to share with them like, oh, do you want to turn that into a movie? Like, do you want to like, is that the type of thing you would like people to even be promoting like your studio and what would that look like? What would be most comfortable? Um, that's a good question. Well, I think in terms of some of the, the 
processes, if, if that's what you're talking about, kind of you know, referencing people to that or, or ideas of what we're doing. Um, it, it's, it's always great for us to interact with more people and meet more people who are in that space of thinking like that or uh, mm -hmm. that we can learn from. I don't think we necessarily see ourselves or, or want to see ourselves as central to any of this. Um, I don't think we want to like, be known as, ah, that's the place that came up with these ideas. You know, we, we just want to put them out there and let people kind of work with them as and when. Um, but we're, we're, you know, because we're learning at this stage, we're happy to connect with anyone and everyone who might be interested in a similar space. So, yeah, short answer is yes, that would be great. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for being here.